The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. APSA CIB, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show. Let me just get the rant out of the way first because the most astonishing statement you would have heard the Minister and the Presidency, Kumbuto Njaveni, in Eyewitness News, and you would have seen copy today um, of her statements made after a cabinet meeting, the uh, cabinet having a meeting today and basically coming out with the statement that the private sector's got no interest in developing the country and wants to collapse the government. Be prepared for, and we also saw uh, Fikil and Balula on this particular conspiracy track, and they're desperate, these guys, because they know they're going to get their butts kicked in the elections next year. They're desperate for fall guys. They're desperate for distraction. So don't be sucked into the narrative of the minister in the presidency today saying the private sector's got no interest in developing the country. I mean, it's a slap in the face for the 200 chief executives who are taking time away from the companies they're supposed to be running and in their own time going for meetings and going to try and help government uh, not collapse the state. She made the comments, of course, and this is where I I get the fact that Standard Chartered admitted last week, well, didn't really admit fault. It just said, please make the problem go away and paid 43 million rand to the competition authorities. This is 13 years, by the way, um, after the fact of currency manipulation. We know there was currency manipulation. There have been admissions to that fact. Citibank and Standard Chartered have settled. But this is the competition authorities dragging their feet, incapable of prosecuting this thing within a 13-year period. Now they're getting settlements and uh, government is latching on to this in some degree of desperation to try and deflect from its own failure. And rather than saying to the private sector, thank you for keeping us in business. Um, and, you know, there's some people within the private sector who would argue that by going into and helping government maintain services, um, and coming up with plans that actually supporting their hands in keeping it in uh, potentially keeping it in power. There's a, there is a school of thought that says the NC should be allowed to implode and implode properly, but that would break the country to a point that the private sector can't afford for it to be broken because you can't run high functioning businesses in a broken society. It's dysfunctional and tough enough as it is at the moment to run high functioning businesses, and we do. We have. A enormously high-functioning businesses in our societies. You will hear through results that we'll talk about this evening. But my goodness me, it's a slap in the face from the minister and the presidency to the private sector to say they have no interest in trying to save the country. My goodness me. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. On that or anything else you want to talk about this evening, 8830702. You can tweet us. You can also WhatsApp voice notes on 0727021702. The first of those chief executives uh, on The Money Show this evening is Dr. Richard Friedland, the chief executive at Netcare. Netcare seeing its best results in years, despite all the difficulties that businesses are facing at the present. Uh, profits up 27% to more than 1.3 billion rand, despite the inflationary environment, despite multi-year highs in the cost of capital, in particular in the medicine sector, where inflation does run higher than average. Dr. Richard Friedland is with us. Things seem to have gone remarkably right over the last 12 months for Netcare. Richard, good evening. Good evening to you, Bruce. Can you hear me? Uh, 178% clearly. Thank you. And... Um, Yes, so we're particularly pleased with the results because, as you say, they were against the backdrop of hyperinflationary costs, a catastrophic collapse of the grid, and interest rates that are at a 14-year high. So we had a number of factors stacked against us, 
that we were able to produce excellent operating leverage or good volumes, volumes that are now higher in the last six months than they were pre-COVID. And our digitization strategy is now beginning to pay dividends. We've produced 104 million of efficiency savings. And our 10-year energy sustainability program uh, has now resulted in us uh, utilizing 39% less electricity today than uh, we did in 2013. So a number of factors aided uh, in us being able to show very good operating leverage um, of good growth. Uh, you've also got your occupancy rates in terms of the number of beds that are filled on a regular basis, um, up nearly 7%. You've got occupancies just under two-thirds of the beds are booked up most of the time. Um, you're in a business where empty beds cost money. You still have to pay for keeping the rates and taxes and keeping the lights on and keeping the water flowing, whether the beds are full or empty. Um, and so by having fewer empty beds, that is where you, what you call the operating leverage comes from, isn't it? Correct. And uh, you've still got to eke out the efficiencies because um, most of the input costs are way above the tariffs that we achieve from the medical schemes. And uh, when you're faced with an 18% increase in electricity and double-digit increases in water and other administrative costs and collapse of service delivery, you have an untold plethora of additional challenges um, that impact your cost base. So volumes are very important, but uh, driving efficiencies are critical. And as I said, we achieved 104 million of efficiencies through digitization alone. You would have heard me talking about the minister in the presidency today saying the private sector has no interest in developing the country and wants to collapse the government. I'm curious as to what your response as a chief executive who has actively collaborated with government through COVID and through other initiatives might think about that. Well, it's an absolute nonsense. We remain absolutely committed as proud South Africans to building a society that we can all be proud of. We're absolutely supportive of universal health care. We recognize that in order to build a sustainable society that we can all be proud of, every South African needs health care. But we do have to do it in a sustainable and responsible way. We continue to invest 4.5% of our revenues in CapEx every year. This year alone, it is 1.6 billion. Next year, it will be 1.4 billion. Those are hardly signs of a company that's not trying to support South Africa into success. How much of that capex, though, goes into productive building and creation of new opportunities <clears throat> as opposed to simply just more solar panels, more generators, more diesel, more making up for state failure? Well, in the past, a lot of our expenditure, over 624 million, went into um, <clears throat> environmental sustainability, but we're through that. And in the new financial year, we'll only spend 77 million. But the vast majority of the 1.4 billion will go into maintenance and repairs of a very large portfolio of 49 hospitals, 70 primary care centers, 14 mental health hospitals, nine cancer centers. And so we continue to maintain, which is a critical element of any infrastructure and something sadly that hasn't necessarily happened in the public sector. Um, we do have uh, strategic projects of about 163 million rand that we'll be spending on in the rollout of our digital, but we continue to invest very actively in South Africa.
I wonder if it's indicative of the state of the nation or if it's a scale issue, what the issue here is. But you've got 14 mental health care centres and nine cancer centres. Um, it, it strikes me that the one issue needs a lot more care than perhaps the other. Bruce, you're absolutely right. And I think given the stress that South Africans are under and that people are generally globally and post-COVID, you're seeing an absolute scourge in mental health. And I don't believe across the board, including ourselves, that we have the absolute solution to this. It's a rising chronic problem. It's happening at younger and younger ages. And we desperately need to find a solution to the increasing anxiety and mental health issues that our society is facing. Dr. Richard Friedland, Chief Executive of Netcare. Good solid performance from Netcare, awarded with a 6% increase in the share price today. Good bump up in the dividend as well. Investors will be pleased. When it comes to inverters nowadays, everybody needs one. But with so many options, it's easy to get left in the dark. Don't stress, Chase Technologies is here to shed some light. Chase inverters are powered by Mega Revo with a five-year warranty and their lithium batteries have a full 10-year guarantee. Not pro rata like others in the market. Best of all, Chase is a bit best company so you know that your warranty is secure. Get your Chase products from Voltex stores nationwide. Chase Technologies, proudly bit best. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. 18 past 6, a dramatic weekend in the world of AI. On Friday, the board of OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, fired its chief executive, Sam Altman. Within 24 hours, there were reports that they were trying to get him back. And this morning, he turned up as chief executive of a new venture within Microsoft. There, with the OpenAI president, Greg Brockman, also let go over the weekend. And with Satya Nadella, the chief executive of Microsoft, licking his lips at the opportunity presented to him on a plate by a board which is now facing rebellion from internally 500 of 700 employees at OpenAI have written a letter to the board saying either you go or we go and we've got a place to go because Microsoft will take us. It'd be fascinating to see how this one plays out. But a weekend of high-stakes drama, Jan Vermeulen, he edited my broadband in reigning centurion this evening. I think that's an important detail, Jan. This is a high-stakes drama, isn't it? Yeah, this is uh, something that's straight out of uh, out of a soap opera, even like Succession or some, uh, you know, like one of those one of those uh, huge, like high-stakes. Um, you know, you can script this. Uh, and so, yeah, the, has seen this news play out over the weekend has uh, has <laughs> has been uh, something uh, I've not seen in my time uh, covering tech. I think the last time people might have seen something like this was the dramatic ouster of Steve Jobs from Apple. Yeah, um, and, and, and look how that worked out. Um, right. <laughs> ultimately, very well for humanity, but in the short term, it was rough for Steve Jobs and, um, yeah, cost that board their careers and their reputations. But I do see this becoming uh, a case study for you know, MBA students in perpetuity, how to crash a company in a weekend, because that's effectively the, what, what is at risk here, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And as you say, there's, there's huge opportunity for for uh, Microsoft here, because uh, from what I've been able to piece together, um, the, the deal with Microsoft between OpenAI and, and Microsoft excludes what they call artificial general intelligence. 
And so um, if OpenAI manages to achieve artificial general intelligence, Microsoft will not be able to just get that. Tech- right now, the, the, the deal allows them to essentially use whatever technology OpenAI produces. But if they produced artificial general intelligence, they don't get that. But if Microsoft manages to get the core people from OpenAI and develop the technology in-house, well, then it gets the kitchen sink. Uh, and again, 500 out of the 700 staff at OpenAI said to the board, either you go or we go. Um, the, uh, at least one board member has broken rank, saying, I'm terribly sorry that I went along with the rest of the board and I'll do what I can to undo it. But the damage is done. That's the trouble here, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see because uh, yeah, Microsoft and, and Sam Altman hold the cards now. So, um, you know, if they, if essentially, if he wants to go back to OpenAI, he can. If he wants to stay on at Microsoft, he can. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because he essentially gets to write his contract and his own check now. From, you know, from what we've seen here now, Microsoft wants him. And um, OpenAI, at least, as you say, some of the board wants him back and, you know, wants to keep the band together. Um, and, uh, you know, it could be devastating for OpenAI if they lose all of their top people to Microsoft. So, yeah, the, 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 it looks like these folks are, or, or Sam Altman and his, his crew um, that have supported him are, are in the pound seats. People are looking at Satya Nadella, the 10-year veteran now um, uh, uh, um, at Microsoft, of course. And Microsoft um, was, I think, in a spot of bother when he took over. And he's been a remarkable leader there. And he's galvanized Microsoft and he's taken it to really new heights. And people are looking at him as a conquering superhero, as a strategic opportunist, as somebody who is able uh, to, to, in a, the blink of an eye, make a very big strategic decision, and that is take on the biggest brains in the world of artificial intelligence, bring them in house, and and let's let's control the world from an AI perspective. I mean, that seems to be the big game. Yeah, I, I don't think this was the plan when Microsoft no. needed to deal with OpenAI. But hey, man, if someone is going to sacrifice his queen, you take it. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you, Jan van Meerlen, editor at My Broadband in Centurion for us this evening. The Money Show. The Markets. Uh, and on to Merrill Peck. Now, Merrill is a portfolio manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group. It's been a busy old day. We've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Maybe we could divide it into that. Certainly in the good column, I would I would put Netcare, a very good set of results out of Netcare today. Merrill, good evening. Good evening, Bruce, and good evening to your listeners. Um, yes, absolutely. And we've seen um, perhaps... Despite um, the company guiding, uh, they still managed to surprise the market. Um, looking at the share price performance today, um, with you know good earnings numbers up 27%. Um, and I think if we rewind to three years ago, in the midst of COVID, global uh, pandemic, health crisis, and yet the irony being um, that hospital volumes were low, right? Exactly. So. Um, Hospitals became the anti-defensive and the, one of the losers out of a global pandemic because um, the way the business model works, a large portion of the revenue is made from surgeries. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is the result of the steady recovery in hospital occupancies. Um, those are edging back up to the pre-COVID levels, sitting just below 70%. Um, and with that, operating leverage because um, hospitals are high fixed costs. 
businesses. You know, you've got to keep everything running. You've got to keep your nurses employed. Um, and if patients don't come in, you still have those costs. So we're starting to see revenue recover um, and absorb costs. Worth pointing out, though, that margins are still not um, back at uh, pre-COVID levels. And I think that is something which um, just highlights how tough, for example, it is to um, to, to, to produce enough uh, nursing graduates, et cetera, and really staff hospitals quite um, yeah. adequately. There's a lot of competition for that. And I think that is reflecting in the margins, but uh, yeah, quite a, a lovely recovery. And as you pointed out, the mental health hospitals uh, or facilities have even better occupancy than yeah. the general It's tragic, isn't it? But I mean, these guys spotted that trend 10 years ago and began to build out into that space. Um, yeah. uh, and it's, I mean, they're meeting a societal need and we're a miserable bunch for, for lots of good reasons. Um, if yeah. we go from the good of Neckcare, maybe to the bad um, of, of the explosives business and the fertilizer mm-hmm. business of Omnia, the Share price went up on the day because actually they're performing very strongly. It's just the prices of the the commodities that they supply explosives into and the price of fertilizers have plummeted um, as Mm. the world has sort of gone more and more crazy in the last two or three years. Mm, Yes. So I think this is um, a good example of, you know, a a good management team making a difference in what is, at the end of the day, a cyclical industry. Um, but I think Steelen and team are, are quite aware of the cyclicality. Um, and to some extent, there was an elevated level of demand, again, over that COVID period. Um, um, very limited imports during that time because of all the supply chain disruptions. So really any stock that local farmers or local mining companies could get their hands on, they were taking from local producers. Now, we know supply chain disruptions have by and large um, normalized. And at the same time, the commodities in question uh, prices have begun to normalize. So it's a double whammy, both price coming off and volume coming off. Um, it's a mixed bag. You know, the, the agri division, well, revenues down across all the divisions. Agri division profits down quite a bit. Yeah. Mining division actually profits up, yeah. which talks to the profitability and um, the work they've done to make that business less um they cyclical and then the worst performer, but also the smallest in the group being the, the chemicals division pro- profits have all but evaporated in that division. But I think the theme that has been driving um, Omnia and, and has made it more resilient, because really given, given the pressure to come off with a, uh, you know, only a single digit move on the earnings line is quite impressive. So I think they've managed their balance sheet much better than we've seen um, the company do in the past under prior management. They've managed their working capital very well. And um, they have been steadily working to decrease the cyclicality of the business by moving into more specialist products where they can actually charge a higher margin. And those volumes and the demand from those clients, um, you know, is stickier. So it's a small portion of the business for now, but there is certainly a, an intelligent strategy in place to become less cyclical within yeah. a cyclical industry. Uh, and then we've gone from the good to the bad to the ugly and Astral Foods for the first time in its 23-year history yes. is seeing seeing a loss and just the, the catastrophe of multiple negative events yeah all happening at the same time. Um, and yeah. really, I mean, what a, a dreadful period to have to trade through. Yeah, I mean, you know, so there's very little, I think, that 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 
management can control in this industry. You know, they can be operationally efficient, um, certainly, but geez, um, where do you want to start? You know, you, you sell something which ultimately you don't control the price of. Your largest inputs um, are, you know, commodities that you don't control um, the price of in terms of the feed. Um, you have a heavy reliance on electricity, you know, in terms of your broiler system. And we've had unprecedented levels of load shedding and having to make the tough decision between, you know, continuing your operations versus spending um, and, and therefore spending a lot on diesel or actually just shutting and, and um, yeah, having smaller, um, you know, yeah, smaller production levels. And, and then, of course, uh, avian flu. So I think it's been a calamitous a calamitous year um, and you know the question is can it get any worse from here for a speculative investor you've got to probably just look and say well what is in the price at this level is it cheap enough i wonder meryl peck it's you know i don't find chicken a particularly attractive industry for all the things that i've yeah. described um so i tend to stay away from it but for those who feel that they understand the industry, the commodity drivers and, um, you know, everything is cheap enough, just don't forget to sell something as cyclical as the chicken industry when it does recover. Thank you, Meryl Peck, who's a portfolio manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group. Comments this evening coming through on my um, fury at comments by the minister in the presidency accusing the private sector of trying to break the country. Uh, JKL comes through on a WhatsApp this evening saying your bias toward the private sector is coming through very strongly. You should read my books. Uh, this, this load shedding was created to allow the private sector to play in the power generation space. Oh, please, if you truly believe that get a nice cool drink and a nice damp cloth find a dark room and a comfy couch put the damp cloth on your forehead and relax and and calm down because you are deluded i agree with you that any banks implicated in uh, rand fixing should pay up absolutely and the individuals uh, found to be um, complicit in currency fixing should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law and their hides should be figuratively nailed to the door of the institutions they represent. And I couldn't agree with you more. But the minister in the presidency is way out of order this evening. She really is way out of order in that statement of accusing the private sector of being trying to break the economy. It's the stuff, oh, but completely and utterly bananas. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. APSA CIB, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Chief Executive of Omnia standing by. We'll talk to Celan Gobel Sami in just a moment. Also to Toby Shapshak in the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Tonight, reviewing an electric car. It's a very funky little car, but my goodness me, at that price, really? Um, but yes, we will talk about that this evening. Also, Ian Mann's got a fabulous book for us uh, tonight. And that is, it's a, it's about mindset. And you constantly hear the mindset story. And I accept that mindset is an absolutely critical factor. But so many people then turn it into this woo-woo, esoteric nonsense about like you can channel your beliefs if you really want a new car. You just think about it and it'll come. Um, no, uh, but certainly the way in which you approach the world, certainly the way in which you think about the world, certainly the way in which you interact with the world and the decisions you take in response to what the world throws at you certainly does have a very big impact on the way in which 
you either succeed or crash and burn. On your next money show, we've got Viv Gamada, who's a portfolio manager at Rand Swiss, who's headmaster of the investment school. Uh, we're going to talk AI. We're going to talk about the advancement of AI. We're not going to talk about the self-destructive attempts of AI, but we will talk about how it's going to impact your investment. In our signals feature, where we look at global trends and where the world is heading, we're focusing on deglobalization and what that means for you. Plus, of course, all of the big other money stories, the big business stories of the day. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Signals today that the South African uh, commercial agriculture sector is alive and well. We know this because they've been buying huge amounts of fertilizer ahead of the summer planting season. Even that, though, not enough to lift the chemical and fertilizer producer Omnia, which is seeing lower prices for its core products, uh, certainly in the uh, fertilizer space, as well as in its chemicals division. Falling commodity prices are hurting its businesses. Seelan Gobalsami, the chief executive at Omnia. Post-COVID, we saw the, the restocking of uh, of commodities and that's huge saw huge demand and big spikes in prices and it felt like nothing was ever going to change Seelan. Since then very sharp retractions and that's beginning to hurt now I suppose. Things have reversed quite markedly in the markets that you serve. Agreed and uh, good evening Bruce and always good to chat to you and good evening to your listeners. I guess what we're seeing in in the first half of our financial year is a um, it's been characterized by this uh, continuing decline in commodity price. And, uh, and that's impacted our revenue. It's impacted our, our gross profits. And it's resulted in a reduction in our earnings per share. You know, we've seen this coming. So we've taken a number of steps in our company to deal with that. And you see the diversification of our mining business coming through. So mining has performed well. And you see us uh, making very conscious decisions to protect our balance sheet. So uh, a strong cash position and a strong balance sheet. But you correct, you know, fertilizer prices have come down. Uh, farmers have increased volumes in certain instances to replenish uh, soil nutrients. Um, and, uh, and overall... A, a, a more normalized cycle for Omnia at half year. Uh, the components of fertilizer, of course, many of which uh, did emanate from Russia, uh, that caused havoc mm. in the fertilizer industry. Have you managed to find alternative sources of those uh, ingredients, of those commodities that go into the manufacture of commercial fertilizers? Yeah, well, I mean, what, you, what you're touching on now is, is what exactly drove fertilizer prices up, you know, over the last 36 months. You know, we had supply chain disruptions, we had the Russia-Ukraine war. We had a number of companies, countries, sorry, closing down imports and exports. And what we've seen since is, um, you know, the world has opened up a bit. Uh, you know, China has opened up uh, some of the exports and imports, and that's caused the normalization of the prices. Um, you know, probably in the last 12 months, we've seen fertilizer prices drop by more than we've, than we've seen in the last 15 years, you know, and, and, and that has a very stark impact. Uh, on a business like ours, which has got a big agriculture component to it. Um, I guess if I, if I reflect on that and I see these prices normalizing and the world opening up a little bit, you know, uh, it, it talks to the resilient performance that our business 
has achieved in the last six months. Yeah, and certainly resilience is the the key word, but resilience only takes you so far. Shareholders are very patient, of course, when times are tough. I think they're quite understanding of tough times. It's about reshaping businesses in tough times, of course, and somehow being able to divine what the future looks like, which is increasingly difficult to do. How do you decide where capital should be invested? Should it be invested in agriculture? Should it be invested in chemicals? Should it be invested in explosives? Which sector is going to need that investment? investment more in the next three to five years. Those are almost impossible asks, aren't they? Yeah. You know, they might be, um, they might be difficult questions to answer, but I guess, um, you know, being in business and allocating capital, that's what we do for a living. So, you know, our, our business, what we said a few years ago, we actually want to allocate capital uh, into our faster growing businesses, like our agri-bio business in Australia. And that business continues to perform well. It continues to be very, very, a very, very attractive asset of ours. And we've done uh, three other things. You know, we've allocated capital into Canada. Uh, we've expanded our explosives business into Canada. That business now makes profit in the current period, which lifts the earnings of our explosive seg- segment, you know, to over 25% in the first six months. We also uh, entered into a joint venture in Indonesia. That business also makes profit now, which is which is added to the enhancing of earnings in our explosive sector as well. And I think in the current period, you know, we disclose that we have bought a 10% stake in a green explosives provider based in Sweden. Um, and, that's, and that potentially could change the landscape of blasting, you know, where we are able to blast without nitrogen, we're able to blast in a clean, cleaner way. And, you know, our explosives companies, our mines have been asking for that ESG, which, um, you know, I'm sure we, we all know, Bruce, is very, very topical. And, you know, we've put a lot of effort into allocating capital into greener initiatives and greener value propositions for our customers. I've been testing the, the waters this evening on a statement from the Minister and the Presidency today saying the private sector has got no interest in developing the country and wants to collapse the government. I asked Richard Frieden for his response. He was unequivocal in his response. What would yours be to a statement as strong as that from somebody as influential mm. as the Minister and the Presidency? Yeah, you know, I guess our, you know, what we've been doing at Omnia, we, you know, we celebrate our 70th birthday. We are absolutely committed to to South Africa and Africa, and we've invested, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of rands uh, into into our plants, into our facilities. You know, to give you three examples, you know, we've built and paid for ourselves. We've built a 10 megawatt uh, uh, green energy solar plant, you know, which supplements the energy um, into our plant. It also allows ESCOM to have some breathing space. Um, you know, we, we went further. We invested in a reverse osmosis plant that allows us to recycle 180 megaliters of water on an annual basis. We went a step further and we use, we're using used oil in our emulsion and, and explosives, which, um, you know, uses less water um, in the environment. It's, you know, a, it's a very diplomatic response to an accusation that you've got zero interest in, um, in, in driving the country forward. I think that's, a, that's something of a denial. I think, I think you would say, no, Minister, I think you're mistaken. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but that's what you're suggesting. Yeah, I think what I'm suggesting, Minister, come and have a look at our capital allocation and see how many hundreds of millions we've spent into, you know, doing our little bit to, to help the country.
Thank you, Seelan, very much indeed. Seelan Gobalsami is the chief executive at Omnia. MZ tonight on my email tells me that um, the, the minister wants us to accept their incompetence. SOEs are collapsing in their time. They don't want to account for anything. They want to be voted back into power with so many failures. They failed with their bankrupt government. Uh, others have come through this evening in various, on various platforms. Uh, Len in Hyde Park um, says that the minister is politically and economically naive. If local businesses do not reinvest, there is no economy. Businesses are prudently managed and run considering ongoing maintenance. Makes me sick to hear these individuals as our leaders. That's quite a strong view this evening. You may have yours, of course, and our lines are open to you. You can give us a call. You can drop us a WhatsApp. You can also send me an email via our website. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Ooh, a very sexy electric car on the block this evening. The Volvo C40 Recharge Ultimate. It's like that little car. Toby, it's a little Volvo. It's the, the, the XC90 is the enormous one. The XC60 is the little one. And then the, the XC40 was the tiny little stubby one. But the C40, what that's more of a sedan-y sort of city golf shape one, is it? Yes, yes. I, I don't know how Volvo would like their car being called the, a, the little stubby one. Um, but well, nonetheless, the, 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 the I, XC40 I'm is the little pleased, stubby I'm one and I like you, it. It's a lovely car. Yes. But stubby. Um, <laughs> uh, I, yes, yes. I, and it is a lovely car. I agree with you. But I didn't, you know, I'm not a petrol head, Bruce. I, I'll, I'll admit that. My late father once uh, got a new car and I said to him, what kind of car did you get? And he said, a white one. And actually, that's like totally appropriate for me. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I've never been interested in, in, in internal combustion engines and carburetors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but... Uh, I'm very interested in electric cars and, and not just this week, Bruce, because the, the, the Volvo C40 recharge ultimate, which is the model they're selling in South Africa has such effective aircon. And believe me, that was very handy yes, uh, in this kind of heat. Um, but because it's a very, very good car. And I, and I, I have to say, I, I, I didn't really clock Volvo until I became an adult. Um, and I've always liked the plushness of their cars. They, they, you know, they really are premium and luxury. Um, and I really think they're very safe, which of course now that I'm a parent is something I'm, I'm just as interested in. But I'm also very interested in, in an electric car, you know, because the, you know, the, the, uh, it was Volvo's CEO Greg who said to me, um, you know, before the, the, uh, the Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, uh, the cost of, 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 or he used this useful analogy, the cost of, of petrol versus electric was electric would be, um, you know, uh, roughly a third of a tank. I should say that's the, the usual analogy. But the thing that he said was, you know, after the, the, um, the Russian invasion that pushed it up to a fifth of the tank because of the cost of petrol and how much petrol's gone up. So not only is it good for the environment, but it's good for your pockets. Um, and, uh, and I think we're going to see some, you know, innovations down the line. There's a, there's a charger called grid cars or a, 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 an organization called grid cars and they're putting in these super fast chargers, uh, super capacitors. I mean, if you get a 150 kilowatt one, Volvo says it can recharge, uh, this, this, uh, C40 or XC40, um, uh, the, sorry, the XC40. I've been calling it the wrong thing all along, but it's a, it's a, um, you can, 
Was it the C forty? No, they, they exceed. They, 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 they exceed. C forty recharge. Let me, right. let me listen. I'm I'm more middle aged than you. The too many acronyms. No, I'm, I know. I, I sound like I work for government. I'm confusing no, my listen. This is this is your world, all right. This is your world of bloody labeling yes. things that should just be called Bob and Jeff and Sepo or something, so that we could tell the difference. But no, they have to give. <laughs> you letters know, Nokia, and Nokia had a really good strategy. Yes. Nokia called it the one, the two, the two point one, the two point the 2.4. I like that. I thought that was a really great way. It's like it made sense to me. I exactly. don't speak maths as a first language. Anyway, back to grid cars, 150 kilowatt fast charger. Volvo says it'll take you from 10% to 80% uh, in 27 minutes. So so that's that's the future, Bruce. That's ultimately what's going to happen. You know, we will plan our, our long distance holidays. You'll use, uh, there are a variety of service providers and apps already. You'll book a slot at, you know, the, the N3 Harry Smith uh, station where you'll, you know, park your car, uh, supercharge, recharge it, go, you know, get, go get some Nando's. The kids will go to the loo, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll get back on the road. And that's, you see, ultimately it needs to be a part of an ecosystem. And that's what, what I, what I'm, I'm interested in, you know, Volvo's working with, with grid cars, um, to get this system integrated because, you know, we, we, the thing about internal combustion engines, we're going off the, the car itself for a little bit, but the thing about internal combustion engines is you can drive into a garage, Bruce, you can spend 10 minutes at the pump, 15, depending on how empty your tank is, you know, fill up your tank, pay with a credit card and you'd be on the road within, you know, like, 10 or 15 minutes, uh, we need to move to a different propulsion system, a different technology yep. system that will be as quickly. And this is, this is where we're going, you know, and the, there's, there's going to be a, a, you know, an infrastructure boom. Somebody's going to have to build these, yep. uh, these, these garages or rest stations. And it's a, so, so, you know, it's going to be a fascinating evolution of how we get around. It is most certainly, Toby. Thank you. Toby Shapshak, the Chief at Stuff Studios this evening. The Volvo C40 Recharge Ultimate. The C40 is a different vehicle to the XC40, of course. Uh, both uh, they, they do share similarities, though. The C40, a slightly sportier version. The XC40 is a bit boxier. It's the stubby one that I referred to, but I like it. It's a, it's a lovely vehicle. They really are. Uh, but the, the I love the evolution in these battery-powered vehicles. They're getting lots of negative press and parts of the world though they're getting lots of concerns around their uh it's not the internal combustion engine but the combustibility of the lithium batteries some safety concerns um whether that is enough to dissuade you um certainly the import duties on electric cars into south africa are a big dissuasion um, you may want to be green you may want to be more effective there was a the launch today in northwest of a green battery recharging business i'm not going to give them an interview on it because that sounds like a bit like an advert but it's it's an idea that they're going to have 150 of these green recharging stations. How they're going to secure them and how they're going to operate them is going to be interesting. The first one should be up and running in Northwest in the next couple of months. But they plan to have 150 of these things with solar panels driving these recharge stations. We're beginning to see the landscape develop in line in anticipation of the greater acceptance of these uh, battery-powered vehicles. And that's really, really good news on that particular front. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. 
please be very, very careful. I'm just seeing a rising incidence in the number of scam emails. They're all going into the junk folder. The company's systems are working well. It's going into the junk. But when you go out to sort of flush out your junk emails and see what else has ended up there, the scam is out in full force. Today, I won 3 million euros. I was delighted. I was so thrilled. I went and told my boss what I thought of him. I said, you're very handsome and I like you very much because I knew it was a scam. And they're very... Anyway, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> I've never played, of course, a lottery like that. I've not ever done that. Um, and I certainly know that I would not have won 3 million euros in that way. Um, and then I got a, an email from a bank I don't bank with reminding me that I needed to take action to release a 52,000 rand deposit that was just waiting to be filtered into my account from somebody I'd never heard of about something I'd never done for something I'd never achieved. So get stuffed. Go, really, take your scams and go elsewhere. They must work. Otherwise, why would people spend time and energy producing these scam emails? Please be very careful. They're not particularly clever, um, and nor will you be if you click on them. Please don't. After Eyewitness News, uh, Chris Scutter, Chief Executive at Astral Foods, our good, bad, and ugly edition of The Money Show. These are the ugly results that we're going to talk about this evening. An industry under huge pressure. Um, one in three chickens have been slaughtered in this bird flu crisis. I wonder how that has affected Astral Foods directly. Its worst results in 23 years. Unpicked, unpacked, and picked uh, to shreds in a couple of minutes' time. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. EPSA CIB, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa, is proud to bring you The Money Show. EPSA is a registered FSP. We'll talk to Chris Skitter, Chief Executive at Astral Foods, in just a moment. But first, the extraordinary events over the weekend at one of the most promising AI businesses in the world, brought to a crashing halt potentially by the actions of a board that would have had its reasons. We don't know its reasons. They said something about there wasn't enough transparency between Sam Altman and the board, and they probably didn't get the answers they 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 wanted from Sam Altman and from his colleagues, and so. They fired him and it's led to an outflow of people and the threat of more people leaving open AI and going to Microsoft. To some commentary I found online about the weekend's events with Sam Altman and playing out like a gripping soap opera. It's the sort of stuff that you could never dream up yourself. People would say, really? No, come on, please be more realistic. Nothing can go that wrong that fast in any business. But this is truly the blueprint of how to take a company down over a weekend. Um, and it is playing out in boardrooms across Across the United States, the Microsoft chief executive Satya Nadella apparently furious when Sam Altman was fired on Friday afternoon. He is an investor in in uh, OpenAI and was only told a couple of minutes before the news went public, so he was furious. And then the OpenAI board got some very cold feet and sort of well, maybe we should reinstate Sam Altman, but he wasn't particularly interested. And instead, he went across town and joined. Microsoft and Microsoft has hired him to lead a new advanced AI research team um, and he's already recruited three scientists from OpenAI. The managing director of the business also has gone across and joined him and it's the most astonishing story. If you just look at the performance of the Microsoft share since uh, Satya Nadella has been in charge, it's nothing short of extraordinary. Just in the last six months, Microsoft share price up 17% to $375.84 this evening. That values the company at $2.79 trillion. It's not far behind the world's biggest company, which is still Apple at $3 trillion. 
the difference is Microsoft is more expensive. It trades at 36 times last year's profit. So it's a very expensive share. Uh, Apple itself is a very expensive share, sitting on a 31 times historical earnings. Makes up half of Warren Buffett's portfolio, by the way, Apple. Huge investment. He avoided tech for, for, for decades and then eventually just loved the Apple system so much um, that he started investing and then got hooked makes up about half of his portfolio. But yeah, $3 trillion market cap for Apple, a $2.8 trillion value on Microsoft. The gap is closing. And today we see a bounce up about 2 3% in Microsoft following the news that uh, Satya Nadella, the chief executive, has been very opportunistic in seizing Sam Altman out of OpenAI. They didn't want him. Satya Nadella did. And that is going to be to Microsoft's advantage. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. We had the results from Netcare earlier. We also had results from Omnia and now the worst results in the 23-year history of Astral Foods. The company also reporting its first ever loss. A combination of failing infrastructure in dysfunctional municipalities, driving up costs, failing electricity grid, of course, and then the worst ever bird flu outbreak in South Africa's history. Also, hitting the sector very, very hard. Chris Skitter is the chief executive of Astral Foods on the line to us from Joburg this evening. It's a perfect storm, Chris Skitter. A 2 billion rand swing from profitability to a 600 million rand loss. Um, despite an effort by the feed division to perform well, the broiler business must have been an absolute nightmare over the last six months, tw- six to 12 months. Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, Bruce, perfect storm. Very difficult to manage, uh, a lot of external factors impacting our business. And as you mentioned, a two billion rand swing. Now that is money that could have been invested in infrastructures and creating jobs and making chicken cheaper. But uh, due to failing municipalities, infrastructure, we had to spend a lot of capital and uh, the load shedding added an uh, astronomical amount of 1.6 billion to our cost structure. And then on top of that, uh, as you mentioned, the bird flu, the worst ever. We lost 40% of our breeding stock, most of them up north in the greater Gauteng area. And we now have to replenish that and do a number of things to fill the vacuum. But all of this... Uh, add to the cost of producing chicken. And if you can't recover that in your selling price, you sit with this kind of figures, uh, something we're not very proud of, uh, but we are in the process of rectifying that. You say you lost most of your breeding stock. Put it in context. I mean, what's most? 60%, 70%, 80%? What, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Because without uh, the breeding stock, of course, to replenish your flocks is going to take a long time. Exactly. We lost 40% of our breeding stock with the, the first outbreak of flu in 2017. We lost about 20%. This time it was double that and it created a huge vacuum. So we have to pull a couple of new party tricks to fill up that vacuum and ensure that the pipeline stays full. Uh, one of those things is uh, importing fertile eggs from across the globe. Now, just imagine that flying eggs around the world. You have to charter a Boeing and fly eggs in from Brazil or America, and that doubles the cost of of, uh, producing a day-old chicken. And all of that just add up to the cost of producing once the cheapest protein 
in, in South Africa. So not a good position to be in. And uh, on top of that, we had our most expensive raw material in the history over the past year going into the feed. And feed make up 70% of the total cost of production. So you had feed, you had water shedding, you had electricity, load shedding, you had blackouts, and you had bird flu. If, if that's a perfect storm, then yes, we, we had one of those, unfortunately. I, I'm curious about this thing. I saw my producer's eyes light up as you started talking about importing fertilized eggs from Brazil. It sounds like a logistical nightmare in terms of, but clearly this is an industry. This is something that happens uh, from time to time when b- parts of the world have a crisis like this. It's not, we're not you know, immune to, uh, we d- we're not the only ones in the world who have the, uh, bird flu outbreaks. This happens from time to time. I'm sure uh, there be a moment where you might supply fertilized eggs to other providers around the world too. Um, explain to me just how that network operates. So first of all, you have to identify people who have more or less the same breeds than what you have so that you get a fertile egg. You have to contact them. You have to make an arrangement. Then you have to apply to the government for an import license. Then you have to charter an airplane, you have to dock them on that side under the perfect conditions on the, on the aircraft, land them here, have them in quarantine for a period of time, then move them to your hatcheries and then hope they, they, uh, they, uh, there's good hatchability. And unfortunately, you're almost buying a lucky packet. Uh, and with the first lot of eggs that arrived, the hatchability was way below our South African standard. So that's another cost. You pay for the egg, but you don't get the chick or at the same rate than what you used to. So at the, everything you do additional adds cost to uh, the uh, cost of production of, of, of chicken meat. Well, what's the gestation period of an egg? I mean, from fertilization to hatching, what is that period? Because there's a not, I wouldn't think it's a particularly long period of time. Uh, and there are, awfully, there are many, many steps that have to be executed within that gestation period because you can't have these day-old chicks sort of popping out of their shells over the Atlantic. That wouldn't be good either. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, they, 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 it it's, uh, depends on the age and how old the eggs is. And uh, when you bring them in and you put them in your setters and your hatchery, it's about 21 days from the day you place them in your hatcheries or your setters till you hatch a dale chick, so approximately three weeks. Sure. No. We, we, have, we have to date imported close on 7 million of those eggs to try and fill up the vacuum created by this bird flu and to ensure that uh, our nation have white meat over the festive season. Uh, I mean, in the, when you talk about the, you've got to ensure that you have the same breeds, you have for many years actually developed a very particular breeding stock at laboratories in the Outer Hebrides, I think it was, under these astonishing laboratory conditions where the genetics of the birds are created so that you get perfection of a, a broiler, for example, for maximum sort of weight gain in return for as little food as possible to feed the things over a 31-day period. I think those were roughly the, the the time frames. I mean, if you've got a specific strain that you've been working with for as long as you have, and most of that strain has been wiped out, that does that change then the the the, the breeding stock and the outcomes that you have? Yeah, we're fortunate. Uh, we farm with a breed called the Ross 308 uh, 
produced by Avigen, a German company that operates mainly out of Scotland. Uh, but they are the largest uh, producer of genetic material and the Rosbird uh, across the globe. So we get in contact with them and find out where else in the world do they farm. And, and they would assist us in, in uh, obviously getting those and obtaining those eggs across the globe. And this time around, we source most of them out of Brazil. And that, that is of the same breed than ours. But we were just fortunate at the time. Absolutely. Um, talk to me about pricing. What's happened to chicken prices over the last 12, year, uh, 12 months? I mean, I'm assuming there's been a, a dramatic uptick. I certainly look at the shelf cost of chicken and it's gone up very, very sharply from a production perspective. What's happened to pricing? Bruce, um, if, if you buy at the right places, the price didn't escalate. Uh, during the past year, as we report, our cost went up, just the feeding cost went up 20%. Chicken prices over the same period went up 8%, way short of recovering our input cost. So uh, that's where the big losses came from. We were subsidizing, if you want to call it that, or absorbing additional cost to the tune of three rand per kilo that we did not pass on to the consumer, partly because we understand the plight of the consumer and the other part because uh, the consumer is, is under severe stress itself. And uh, we are very sensitive to that. So, so hence the loss. Uh, we're trying to communicate to the consumer and the market that this is not sustainable. And if we want to be around in three to five years' time, we're going to unfortunately have to recover our input cost. Absolutely, but at some point, though, that balance between the import cost of the cheaper meats from places like Brazil, which which produce far more cheaply and with subsidies, and we don't have that here, um, that that balance is also something delicate that you've got to try and manage. Absolutely so. We have to ensure that we uh, have enough chicken around so that there's not a shortage and that the price don't go up beyond the supply and demand factor. So we want to supply whatever the market needs. We still import uh, um, chicken into this country, mainly uh, MDM or mechanically deburned meat. It's a pulp meat, comes in frozen format, and it goes into polonies and those kind of stuff. But we also import bone-in portions. Now, they are a market player, and they have approximately uh, 20% of the market in South Africa. And and as long as it's not dumped product, it's part of our marketplace. Our fight has been for 12 years against the dumping, which is an illegal practice. Uh, and that's been our fight. And we, we uh, recently had the fortunate benefit of anti-dumping tariffs being imposed on dumped product, uh, mainly again uh, against Brazil and some other countries. And uh, now the minister is making noises of postponing or lifting that anti-dumping tariff because uh, he thinks there's going to be a shortage of chicken. Uh, we made a good case to ITAC that actually is a sub-arm of the Department of Trade and Industries that there will not be a shortage. We, we will look after ourselves and make sure that the supply side of the market is... Uh, is well balanced. Thank you to Chris Skitter this evening, the chief executive at Astral Foods. The Money Show. Business books. How does the way you see the world affect you and affect your 
social and economic outcomes. There's a huge amount of online content about self-belief and channeling positive vibes. And if you just, you know, channel thought, it'll come to reality. It's a lot of hocus pocus, woo woo nonsense. Of course it is. But there is a science to the fact that many of the outcomes we have in the world have everything to do with the way in which we choose to approach our lives. And a lot of good work has been done by a science writer by the name of David Robson, who's written a book called The Expectation Effect. It's been devoured, notarized, and now to be communicated by Ian Mann, our regular book reviewer and managing director at Gateways Business Consultants. Just elaborate on this idea for me, if you would, Ian. The the best-selling book on on the voodoo stuff, um, guru stuff, was called The Secret. It sold 35 million copies. It was a bestseller. (laughs) And all that is just pure pseudoscience. Ever since I've read that, and I read it and was appalled by what was coming up, it was many, many years ago. And the only reason I read this book is because it's based on on peer-reviewed journal articles only. So when it's something peer-reviewed, it means a comedy of your peers um, the best of the best professors around will look at your your work and say, this has to be fixed this way, and you'll go through various iterations and not such times a good journal will, will publish it. Those are peer-reviewed journals. And all the stuff in this book comes from peer-reviewed journals. So let me give you a couple of examples of why this is so powerful. Yeah, I've mean, always believed that seeing is... Sorry. No, yeah. no, and, and you're a believer. I think you are. You are a believer. You are a believer that we are. We are the architects of of our of our of our business and, and social outcomes. I think. In, indeed, but there's there's evidence for that, and the evidence is not is not woo woo stuff. It's real solid things. I just want to tell you one real part of it. There's a notion of, um, and what you see in this book will get will convince you based on quality science that this stuff is for real. There was a study that was done on on comparing Ray-Ban sunglasses to, to the cheaper brands. They took a, a large group of people. They gave some, they didn't tell who was getting what. They gave some Ray-Bans. They, sorry, they gave everybody the cheap ones and some were given the Ray-Bans. They knew that they got Ray-Bans and then they checked, checked what would happen. They, they put them in a room where the light was so bright, it was almost impossible. It was really hard to read, certainly without sunglasses. They had to read 84 words in this very bright light. They, what they found that people who had Ray-Bans on, 50% of them, they made 50% less mistakes than those who were wearing cheap glasses. And they completed the, the list of 84 words that they had to read in a glaring light in 60% of the time. So it was quite clear that people who had Ray-Bans on were doing so much better than the others. Both of them were given junk Glasses, both of them. But because, because the group, the, the, con, the control group, got cheap glasses and the, and the experimental group got great glasses, they thought that everything was different. Therefore, they were able to read in bright light. This is not, this is not I wished it would happen. This is I could read something which I could never have read otherwise. This, this, this idea that your mind is much stronger than you think it is was proven many years ago, in fact, during the Second World War, there was an uh, anesthesiologist called Harry Beecher. What he, he, was, he was doing work with soldiers who were coming into these, these tent, tent hospitals in the middle of no place. And they had horrific wounds. And he was, doing, he was responsible for seeing to them that they, they, that they got painkillers before they did the anesthetic. You can't, you can't do it. Uh, and you can't do a 
surgery on a man who's wounded um, without anesthetic because there's a real danger of cardiac shock. And they, there wasn't any anesthetics around. And one of the nurses said to him that what she has been doing is she's been injecting patients with saline solution and telling them that I stand, you'll start to feel much better in a few minutes. I'm going to inject the stuff 90% as effective as if they'd had, they'd had real, real anesthetic. That was, that's called a placebo. Placebo means it makes you feel better. Nowadays, what they do with placebos is there are lots and lots of trials that where doctors don't know which is a placebo and they give the patients what they all believe is probably good drugs, half of which is nonsense, and, and the, the results are incredible. To the extent that they gave um, placebos to people and they told them that this drug this, this drug for Parkinson's is a very cheap drug. And others, they said, listen, we're going to give you this drug, but it's a very expensive drug. People who had the cheap drug were cured to a far lower degree than those who believed that the placebo they were getting was an expensive one. Our minds control so much of what's yeah. going on. Was, this affects us beyond, sorry? Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, they, they, he talks about our brains being prediction machines. I remember asking Gidon Novik, it was during COVID and he started Lyft Airline. I said, Gidon, you know SAA is in business rescue and Comair is bust and, you know, it's a disaster zone and you're launching a new airline. And he said to me, well, if you hang around with the sort of people I hang around with, you can't be but optimistic because we find opportunity. And it's that the way we choose to approach the world kind of predicts our outcomes. If, you know, obviously within limits and boundaries and madness, but, um, you know, you can't just wish things to be better, but you believe things are better. So you act in particular ways to make them better. And that then becomes a, a, a ultimately you get the outcomes that you, 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 you expect. But do you know, I'll tell you how, how, how serious this is. They've, they're in the book records, lots of studies, hundreds of studies. One of them was a professor at Rochester University. He was an athlete, and he realized that athletes, when they're, when they're feeling stressed for a, a really big match, they actually do better because that sort of builds them up and they get really, really get going. The same same people, he'd see them when he was when he was a student, he would see them in the classrooms during tests and they'd be falling apart. And what he did was he, he wanted to know why it is that, that um, tension is bad in the exam and great in the field. What he did is he did a test where he told students these students were all doing their GREs, mock GREs. They do mock GREs before they do the real one. That gets you into university. But what they did was they gave everybody who was doing the, the mock GREs, the practice test, they gave some of them, half the group, they gave them a piece of paper that just said this. People think that if they feel anxious while taking a standardized test, they'll make them do poorly on the test. But recent research suggests that arousal doesn't fit performance on these tests. In fact, it can even help them. So if you feel concerned and anxious when you're doing this test, know that actually maybe increasing your ability to do well. What they found with the people who did that, um, of the control group, the ones who didn't get the message, they, their average score was 706 on the GREs. Those who got this message, just this quick message, their, their scores were 770 on the GREs. That's the difference between getting into the university of your choice or not getting into the university of your choice. But this idea that your mind controls so much, and I think the most extraordinary thing that they talk about is something that we, I would never have believed unless I'd seen it. There was, I'm sure a lot of people in the past heard about Robert Rosenthal. He did a test 
getting teachers that certain of their pupils are the cusp of great uh, brains, um, a great, great intellectual spurt. These are little kids in school, um, grade one and grade two, and that these kids were going to do fantastically the next year. And based on what they did last year, they actually did incredibly well, but there was no test at all. The test that Robert Rosenthal, he was from Stanford, um, did, uh, did at the elementary school in San Francisco called Spruce was just nonsense. There was no test, it was a sham test. What does, what does, when I read this first, many, many years ago, I thought that the reason why the, two, the pupils had done so well was because the teachers thought that these kids were brilliant. So if a kid didn't understand and he's brilliant, it must be me, so I'll, I'll explain better. The fact was that the teachers ignored these kids who were smart, actually ignored them compared to the others. They focused on the kids who were having difficulty. And yet those children who, who they thought were smart, but they didn't give any extra tuition, actually did much better on objective tests. What this means is we know, for example, that your IQ is based on nature versus nurture. And the, the other determinants of things like, have you got good genes? Are you, are you, do you eat well? Uh, do you have a good home environment? Nobody ever thought that your IQ could be influenced by somebody else's expectations when they didn't even articulate them. And I think that all of messages like this are incredibly important for management. When, when, a, when a, does a staff member think that you're going to, that you expect them to do well or expect them not to do well? And so that, that you're saying things, it's just your attitude towards it. They, they, they did test like this with, 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 uh, with SEALs, those are underwater soldiers, upgrade soldiers in, in the US. And they found that the expectation changed how, how, how persistent they were, how much they could put up with, and what they actually achieved. This, we, the more we know about how incredible our minds are and how much we can get out of them, um, I think the better for every single manager, literally every parent, there's so much more we can do by getting people to expect different things, including that they're smart. Ian Mann, thank you. Ian Mann at Gateways Business Consultants, reviewing a fabulous book for us this evening. The book is called The Expectation Effect by David Robson. And it very clearly shows that the way we think about the world profoundly shapes how we navigate it. It really does. In every How I Make Money, brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. I haven't spoken to Dr. Cheryl Calder for a long time. I know how she makes money, um, but I don't know whether you would. I certainly, I popped in to see my optometrist today. Boy, do I know how she makes money. Yes, she she knows how to make money, but I understand that. Um, But what Dr. Cheryl Calder does is she is a visual performance specialist. And the founder at iGym. How does a visual performance specialist make money? What is a visual performance specialist? How do you become a visual performance specialist? All of these questions need answers. And the only person who can give us those answers this evening is Dr. Cheryl Calder. Hello, Cheryl. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. What is a visual performance specialist? Hello, Bruce. How are you? We are so delightful. Um, our visual performance isn't what it should be, but other than that, we're doing very well. Thank you. Okay. Oh, cool. So what I do, um, I mean, if I can put it in really simple terms, it's um, so it's not got to do with optometry, so not got to do with sight, but actually how you take information in, you know, how do you see it, how do you judge it, etc. And then that information needs to be processed in the brain. 
And from there, it goes to the body and you make an effective decision under pressure. So those four components are really, really what I work on. Okay. So now if I... If I was playing cricket and I was batting, um, I would yeah. see the field in exactly the same way as um, a top quality, top class batsman would see the field. Um, they, however, would observe the flight of the ball and therefore would be able to respond differently to me because they may have trained their eyesight in order to be more responsive. Right, right. So they, they actually train they actually train their eyes. Um, how to take information in. So uh, I always explain you can have good eyesight or bad eyesight and we can still improve your ability, how you look for the ball or see the ball or judge the ball, for example, in cricket, as you mentioned. So uh, there are different components, how you track it, how you see it out of the hand, um, um, how quickly you can see it. And this, um, you know that the great batsmen, they talk about them having a lot of time on the ball, a lot of time to play their shots. And actually, they don't have more time than you or I or anyone no. else. It's just that <laughs> pick up information early, and that is, that is a trainable skill. So you can teach a cricketer to pick up information earlier, which means he's got more time to make a decision. Because in the real world, you've actually trained sports people. You've trained the Springboks. You've trained the Proteas, I think, if memory serves. You've, you've yes. actually helped individuals to do precisely that, give themselves more time to make a decision, basically, is what, yes. you, what you're doing. Yeah, and, and, and you can train you can train the eyes to take in that information accurately, quickly, uh, well-judged, uh, early, etc. but you can also train the brain. So the brain is inherently also a muscle, and you can uh, create new pathways, you can, you can stimulate it, you can make the information process quicker to tell the body what to do. And then we obviously work on the body, you know, how you um, – like people, a lot of people talk about eye-hand coordination – um, but it's actually a lot more than that. Um, and then we've, as I said, we've trained, you can actually train decision making. So I have a, I have a training program where in a, in a 10 minute session, you can make about 500 decisions based on something you haven't seen before. So you can imagine how you, how you train that component. Uh, what, what sort of things are we talking about? We're not talking about a balance sheet here, I don't think. I mean, we're talking about something in the physical <laughs> world. <laughs> Uh, well, we were talking cricket, but interesting enough, uh, there's a, I work with a, an auditor when he's got to get his big audits done, who, who does a course in iGym because he, he feels that he, he sees information, he sees things that he doesn't normally see and he picks up information earlier and he processes it quicker. So he does it in a shorter time. So it, it really has an influence on, on every single person, whatever you do. Uh, and you, you, you've used it in driving skills training as well, haven't you? In terms of actually, yeah, this, is a, this is applicable to all of us. It's not just if you are a high-level sportsman and you want to go from provincial to national and the, you know, the, 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 the extra microsecond you get with your eye on the ball is the thing that makes the difference between yeah. you and, and yeah. the other guy. Um, when it comes to something like driving, and I think this is, should be an essential skill that we should all learn, it's that ability yeah. to to see the sort of through the windscreen differently to what I would see, for example, you may have a different perspective on it because you see danger emerging quicker or sooner. No, exactly. No, it, it, it's exactly true. You judge better, you see quicker, you drive better, uh, you cohort better. Um, and um, the scary thing about what we do today, we spend so much time on our smartphones 
and the eyes were never designed to work on these small little devices close to our eyes all the time. And then we get in our cars and we think that uh, we should be driving effectively, but we've pretty much trained, if, if you want to call it for a better word, on these tiny little devices for, I mean, some, some people spend 10 hours, 10, 14 hours on their phones a day. And then we want to get in a car and actually drive effectively with lots of other motorists around us and all kinds of stuff happening, bad weather, um, other people responding badly. Um, so we should all be doing it every day. Uh, physiologically, and in small words that we can comprehend here, Cheryl, please don't be too technical on it, but you say it opens new pathways in the brain. How might you train me to become a better driver? What would the sort of process would I go through in, in, to go to Cheryl's driving school and become a safer yes, driver? What, 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 what would I do? Yes, yeah, so again, in simple terms, I would assess you. So I have an online assessment which I can send you. I'll see what your skills are what your strengths and weaknesses are, and then I would design a training program for you uh, to train on where you train how you see, process, and respond and make a decision. Um, and uh, you, you get access to the program every day. It's like you know, it's like taking yourself to the gym every day, um, except you can do it in, in, in your office before you start working or you can do it uh, when you get back from school or whatever people are doing. Yeah. But uh, it's accessible to every, anyone all over the world. So I, I actually work with people all over the world, and they but train you, in the. Would you test? Uh, I don't know a moving dot and see if I can click on it or something. I'm I'm, I'm being really basic here, yeah? but just taking checking uh, yeah. reflexes, how quickly I respond to a particular issue, um, how quickly I yeah. might react, therefore, to a danger on the road. Right. How, how accurately and how, how how well you make a decision. You know, and that decision isn't always based on speed, but more on accuracy and, 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 and decision. So um, people always think it's just about reaction time, but it's not. You know, sometimes I still need to make a good decision, and I'm not always uh, hurried to make it. So uh, it's a it, it's a whole lot of different components. So really, what you would need in your in your daily work, and what I would need in my work, and what other people need, those skills are trainable. Dr. Cheryl Calder is with us this evening, visual performance specialist and the founder at iGym. I've told you what she does. I don't know how she got there, though. So that's the question next. How did she get there and how does she actually earn her living out of it? Because what our purpose here is, is to broaden your mind, broaden your perspective on things that people do for a living. Um, we had uh, the wonderful Hestel van Staden, who studied medicine for seven years and then specialized for seven years and became a pathologist. And she figures out how people die. And it's just an astonishingly different approach to the world of medicine. You, you, you study how to keep people alive and then you you study out what kills them and she specialized in it and her book blood has a voice has arrived on my desk and i shouldn't have looked at it it's captivating it really is but it's oh, it's gory um but yes and people with interesting pastimes interesting uh, ways of working interesting ways of taking their training and turning it into something of a higher purpose and this is really should be a guidebook i suppose for younger people trying to think you know, should i become an accountant um well accountants aren't just accountants anymore lawyers aren't just lawyers anymore the training you get in those disciplines can tee you up for a huge smorgasbord of incredible career opportunities and that's what we're trying to hire dr cheryl calder visual performance specialist and the founder of iGym. How does one become a visual performance specialist, Cheryl? What's the background to that? Um, it, well, the background's really sports science. 
um, that's uh, that's where I started. Uh, initially, uh, there wasn't any studies in this direction, so my, mine was the first of its kind. Um, but it, it, it comes it comes from a long way. Where I, I was challenged as a kid by how do you do that? Why do you do that? From from a really young age, and um, then I, I started playing international hockey and. Through that, I realized that I do things different and see dif- see differently, um, and then discovered that I, I actually trained these skills, these visual performance skills as a kid by trying to find out why I do this and why people do that. And it, then um, I played hockey and, and people said, what, what are you doing and why do you do it like that, etc. And then I realized I do, I do things differently and approached Tim Noakes and I said, um, I, I really believe that I can impact performance, but I need to do a study to show that it, it makes a difference. And um, that's really where it started, you know. And, um, yeah, so the, the, base, the basis is sports science. But you realized that you were doing something differently. You were doing it unconsciously or subconsciously or just doing yes. it. And you actually almost had to analyze the fact that you were different to others. What made you different? And then almost dissect yes. it, go back and say, right, how do I take what I do and create a format for teaching it? Because fundamentally, you believed everybody could learn it. Yes, exactly that. Exactly that. And then... Um just put it in a format. Um, the, I, I started off really manually working with, with, with players and athletes and then realized that um, I can't be all places and I started working all over the world. And I actually, early 2000, I worked with the All Blacks. I don't think many people actually realize that. And all would, of forg- all would forgive away. you. All would forgive you, even though <laughs> it's 23 fine. years ago. <laughs> I understand that. But anyway, I realized that I, uh, once I got there, I realized, no, I need to leave a training program with them. So then I started creating a kind of software program in a very antiquated way. And then I realized that I also needed to measure them while I wasn't there. Um, and, and that's really how it all started out. So, um, and and that and again, technology has evolved to such an extent now. I mean, it must be full of whiz bangs yeah. and all kinds of, of of tech. And you also must be able to almost automate the monitoring process. I would guess based on Actually, uh, the, the, how, yeah. how smart technology is today. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes it it makes it a lot easier, but it also makes it a lot more complicated. But um, really exciting because I I can work with a player in India, I work with a squash player in India, for example, I can see what he trains, when he trains, what he scores, I can change his program, I can I can see when he's training, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's exciting. I mean, is the vast majority of your business sports training or is there a broader sort of spread? You've got, you've got at least one auditor that we're aware of um, and some drivers <laughs> and probably some bad the, drivers and some good ones. Yeah, the, the bulk, the, the basis of the, of, of all my work has been sport, but it, it, it has really gone into all dimensions. I mean, I worked with Discovery and Chur for, for many years, working with everyday drivers. Um, I work with a lot of schools, a lot of young kids. Uh, I work with kids with um, ADD, ADHD, etc. I work with stroke patients. So people approach me from all over the world saying, this is, this is what's happening to me. Do you think it could make a difference? And I, I mean, some of the stuff I haven't studied specifically, but I would say, yes, yeah, a program for you. Give it a try and give me feedback. So I've, I've, I've worked with 
everyone really. So we, we all need it. You know, I always say if, if anyone other than having a certain condition, if anyone uh, uses a smartphone on a daily basis, um, our eyes and brains weren't designed to do that. So you would need this kind of training anyway. Does it make us lazy or does it just alter our perspective? I mean, Cindy, because your, your perspective it goes down to a 2D image that is too small for the human mind really to contemplate. So you're concentrating in on a small screen, doing whatever it is, playing Wordle or watching videos or playing games or um, on social media, whatever you, however you're choosing to waste your life away. Um, and uh, you do that and then you go out into the real world and you wonder why my tennis game has gone to hell or you wonder why my, I'm not getting the timing right on my golf shot and you wonder why you actually have uh, had three bumps bashings in the last 12 months exactly that so i've, I've actually with elite players who i measure you know more ardently that they uh, i've seen a, a decrease in skill level um uh everyday people you can imagine what it does to us you know because um, we people spend hours and hours and hours on devices uh, on digital devices uh, yeah. we lose our awareness we lose our judgment um, and then uh, I, I'm not sure if people know, um, you know, we multitask um, and and the brain was never designed to multitask. The brain was designed to focus on one thing at a time. But when you're on your smartphone, you go from Twitter, you go from um, oh, X to Facebook yeah. to uh, phone call to WhatsApp to uh, – so we, we – we just lose our ability to concentrate yeah. and that is the basis of a lot of productivity and elite performance. I mean, is that where the, the ADHD stuff comes in? Because, I mean, we're far more aware of ADHD and ADD now than ever before. Um, when it comes then to your training, is that simply a question of focus and helping mostly kids, I would assume, but I'm sure adult ADHD is also increasingly diagnosed. If you can help people focus and concentrate um, yeah. using sites, then they're actually they're not going to be distracted perhaps as much? Well, you see, we, we practice every day to be distracted. So we're actually training in a way to be distracted by what we do on a daily basis. And what I do, I just bring you back to focusing on one task at a time. And actually when you do our gym, if, if you don't, if you don't concentrate, you can't do it. So it forces you to do that. And concentration, attention is one of our most amazing skills, which we are losing at a very fast rate. It's a terrifying reality, Dr. Cheryl Calder. Thank you for sharing with us this evening. The visual performance specialist, the founder at iGym. Um, and yeah, huge amount. I, and I didn't realize just how far reaching it was. Yes, professional sports people. But if you're a weekend hacker who spends a lot of time on screen and you want to improve your golf game, I'm sure Cheryl can help. Um, tennis player, paddle player. Sorry, paddle player. Because we don't play tennis anymore. It takes mm -hmm. too long. Um, mountain biking. You can see the roots fast. You can see the roots before they grow. <laughs> You can see them growing because you get the superlative training. But yeah, she's done incredibly well with iGym. Dr. Cheryl Calder this evening, How I Make Money.